0: Welcome to the Way of the Lamb podcast, a resource of the Center for Christian Formation. For more information, go to christianform.org. Thank you for joining us for a conversation on power and the church. Welcome back to the Way of the Lamb podcast. So good to be with you. My name is Jamin Goggin. I'm joined by my dear friend Kyle Strobel
1: everyone, thanks for being with us.
0: And if you're just joining us uh, fresh here, uh, we encourage you to go back and listen to some of our earlier episodes. We're now several episodes in here on the podcast, but if you've been walking along with us up to this point, you know that we're just seeking to have kind of open, honest dialogue between Kyle and I that we hope to invite you into around this question of power in the church. And uh, much of this dialogue is kind of the result of uh, conversations Kyle and I have had with each other, as well as with others in the life of the church in recent years, uh, since we wrote our book together, The Way of a Dragon or The Way of a Lamb. And uh, that book uh, kind of surfaced for us, uh, ongoing dialogue about uh, power in the church today, in particular, the evangelical church in North America, but also has really been an impetus for us to have uh, dozens and dozens of conversations with pastors, ministry leaders, uh, people in the life of the church who've really been wanting to wrestle with this question of what does it mean to embrace Jesus' way of power in the church? And and in what ways perhaps have we embraced a worldly power as we call it the way of the dragon, the way from below. And what can be done about that? And so we've been Uh, seeking to have that dialogue kind of here in the open with you all, um, kind of surface some of the primary questions we think that have surfaced in recent years following our book that we've felt have been most interesting and prescient. And um, I I think one of the things that Kyle and I have said in the last couple of years and other podcasts we've been interviewed on, many conversations we've had is that we really hope this conversation we're having um, becomes a normal conversation in the life of the evangelical church that Uh, We believe this uh, temptation towards the way from below or worldly power in the church is kind of the crisis of the evangelical church in our time. And in light of that, we need to have this conversation. We need to be talking openly and honestly with one another about what we see happening in the church. And uh, to that end, we've actually been really encouraged in the last year or two years as we've seen other resources and and other voices um, encourage that conversation and foster that conversation. And one such resource in particular that I think really has brought that conversation much more into the kind of evangelical public square, so to speak, has been the Mars Hill podcast. And we've been actually really encouraged by um, the way in which that podcast, maybe for many who hadn't been wrestling with these questions, forced them to wrestle with the question. And we've been really encouraged by the conversations it's actually invited us into with folks, um, who've been wrestling now, maybe afresh with these these tensions and these concerns in the church. But I think one of the things we've we've noticed in many of those conversations that Kyle and I have had uh, since that podcast is the way in which many have chosen to talk about um, what they heard in the podcast, the concerns um, that they've expressed about, in particular, Mark Driscoll and his leadership, Um, The way that that gets talked about and named and identified um, has been interesting for Kyle and I to pay attention to. And I think one of the things we've really noticed in a lot of the conversations we've had with folks who've listened to that podcast and engaged us in conversation is um, so much of the language um, shows up um, in really more kind of um, categories of our culture. Um, the language that gets used to talk about what went wrong at Mars Hill mm. or what uh, what Mark Driscoll did that may have been wrong, often it shows up in categories of you know toxic leadership, um, spiritual abuse, uh, talk of narcissism And while this language actually I think is really forceful and at times appropriate it can be helpful mm. in identifying and clarifying things, what Kyle and I have actually noticed in some of these conversations in recent years is um, how little um, the kind of biblical idiom, the language of Scripture, actually informs the way we talk about some of these things. And as a result, um, how often the descriptions we're giving, like "Wow, this is really um, spiritually abusive," or well, "This is this really demonstrates toxic leadership," while se- seemingly being forceful and direct oftentimes actually fails to really clarify what we mean and the language while being um, maybe forceful and clear oftentimes is rather plastic in it's real meaning and definition. And so we're not really getting at what, what is the problem we're actually identifying? What is the sin we're saying was committed there? Um, how might God actually think about that? And what is God's word say about that? And, and so, you know, we, we, we hear people talking about um, perhaps how alarmed they are, what they hear was going on at Mars. So if they weren't aware of that or what they hear was happening, um, but struggling to really name really concretely and clearly and specifically in Christian terms, what those problems are. And so, um, we don't hear, for example, the language of greed talked about, or envy necessarily, or even pride, or even the language of sin specifically. But again, these other kinds of terminology gets brought in. And I, I think we want to have a conversation about that. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to speak Christianly about problems of power in the church? Uh, how might we use kind of the biblical idiom for, as we seek to identify what the problem is and how we name it and why that might be actually really important for the biblical language to be primary. And then, and then I think in relation to that, how potentially psychological language, sociological language, you know, language of our culture that our culture kind of traffics in where that might be actually be helpful in helping to inform or further articulate what we mean. And so how might we think about the relation, um, so I, you know, Kyle, as we as we think about this, I wonder how how that has struck you in conversations. It, it, yeah. You know, it, if you've kind of noticed um, at times maybe an inability to talk very concretely and specifically, or more Christian terms, about the problems that people see. Yeah, you know, maybe not just specific to Mars Hill and the podcast, but even just more broadly to the kind sure. of concerns they have with power in the church or leaders that they think are have done something wrong right or wielded their power inappropriately um, yeah how does this surface for you in conversation
1: yeah yeah no it you know it was really interesting for probably about three months after um the rise and fall of mars hill podcast came out i could tell when when someone made a beeline for me across campus i just knew what the question was going to be because <laughs> it was you know so many of my students were talking about it so many of my colleagues were were like wow did you know the extent did you you know and mm. um, and of course writing what we write about you know suddenly people are wanting to hear well what do you, are you listening to the podcast what do you think is going on and and I found myself once again I thought this was kind of behind me but once again having a lot of conversations about Mark Driscoll <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which isn't necessarily what I was looking forward to but you know
0: right.
1: it, it it is really interesting to hear what we are willing to talk about and how we're willing to talk about it. And, mm. and you know, I, I actually wonder if if for many of us, we just need to spend some time just sitting on that. Like, what, what are we willing to talk about? Now, for most of us, I have found, we have no problem talking about failures of celebrity pastors. It is interesting how many of us, though, maybe struggle outside of maybe the sexual realm to talk about the sin Of celebrity pastors, so like I'll hear people talk about their unhealth,
0: naming what it is specifically.
1: But even even calling it sin, and then yeah, then naming explicitly what it is. And you know, one of the things that really struck me as I was listening to that podcast was that you know, as some of the old elders at Mars Hill were interviewed, now they obviously have quite a lot of hindsight at this point about it. But even the fact that they'll, some of them were willing to kind of double down on. Even when Mark resigned, we didn't want him to. We wanted to figure it out. We wanted to restore him and I remember thinking like, wow, (laughs) even then, okay, it's one thing in the moment, but wow, even looking back years later, you're still looking through a lens that said, actually, this wasn't sinful per se. It was unfortunate, it was unhelpful, and even abusive. It's interesting how that term now gets tossed around. Like, is it abusive but not sinful? And what would that mean, right? Like, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't even know what that would mean. Right. And, you know, very famously, um, the elders of Mars Hill came out with a, um, a document after all of this, and they just wanted to clear it up for people that, in their words, he hadn't committed sin, and John Ortberg kind of wrote a well-known piece with um, Christianity Today, kind of saying, "Wait a second! You listed all these things he did; those are all sinful." <laughs> like, and it's and he pointed out at the time, and I think he's right about this that we we have a code word for leadership, and and sinful means adultery; it means some form sort of physical sexual abuse. I mean, it, and then suddenly, as a culture, it's it's almost like we've lost our own, to use your earlier term I like, we've lost our idiom. Yeah, We've lost our kind of, the, the kind of conceptual framework with, with, with which to understand these things so that we can name things that are explicitly named as sin in Scripture, and yet we don't talk about them as sinful. And, you know, one of the things I think is important to name is that this isn't just kind of semantics. Like, the language we use helps provide this kind of framework within which we think. And so if we're primarily thinking in terms of what would a healthy human being do in a very kind of psychologized sort of way, well, one, we will miss all sorts of things that scripture names as sin. That's right. But it also, one of the things that'll be even more troubling perhaps is that some things that are righteous will be missed and will be seen as unhealthy. (laughs) right and so there's there's you know that language could be really helpful at times, and you know when we use toxic leadership in our book we use you know we're sure. we're we're certainly kind of open and ready to use these terminology to this terminology when it's fruitful, but they need to describe things that are primarily given meaning by the biblical idiom of sin and and this is where the framework from James three of um, the way from above the way of wisdom. Versus the way from below, the way of folly. I think that that's particularly helpful for for any number of reasons. I mean, I think scripture uses that very very purposely. But you know one of the things that's so interesting about it is how provocative it is. um as we mentioned, you know, as we mentioned quite a lot now, you know, it's it's the way of the world, the flesh, and the devil. like those three things are interlocked. But even just right before that passage, you know the context of this passage is how we, how we shouldn't want to be teachers, right? Not all of us are meant to be teachers. That's interesting, even though social media, I think, has made us all believe and act like teachers. I mean, I think that's something we all need to really wrestle with. Um, if you're asserting something is true on social media, you're accepting a platform of a teacher, like right? that, that. There's no other way around that. Scripture warns us against such things. And then it immediately goes to how we use our tongues. Mm. And if, you know, if we're using a primarily like kind of a psychological framing, this, that, this is not an obvious way to turn. I mean, you'll get there, but Scripture immediately goes to how we use our tongues. And, and just think about what it says. It compares it to a rudder on a ship. That's interesting. Our tongue is like a rudder. Hmm. It's like um, having a bit in the mouth of the bridle of a horse. Like, notice that, that in Scripture, the way we use our tongue sets the course of a life. And in particular, it goes on, this is in in James 3, starting um, in verse 5 and and, and following, the tongue is a fire, a world of of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. Mm. And it's like you think about how we use our words, and how we see people use our words and how even the elders that Driscoll had were, were, were allowing themselves to hear how we used his words, which, I mean, what better description than set on fire by hell of so many of the things he said and yet looked at that and said, that's not sinful, although it's unhealthy. Yeah, yeah, it's probably unhealthy leadership, right? That's probably not not ideal, not... And set on fire by hell, and it's not only a side issue, this establishes a course of life. And this is where we, we really need to have a—you it, It's you know, as you mentioned, we, we certainly do want to have a conversation about power in the church. We think it's fundamental. But we also need to have the right conversation. And, and the language of Scripture will help us have the conversation the way it needs to be had. And so we need to talk about the fact that this is beyond kind of unhealth or toxic leadership. This is someone who's wielding hell, is setting on fire a life in a ministry, and therefore is undermining the work that God is doing.
0: Yeah, I think there's um, an adoption of a way of talking that, you know, it... I think we experienced something in the church We experience something with a leader, with a pastor either directly or, or indirectly again, if we're listening to the Marcel podcast and, you know, seeing and hearing about this, but we weren't necessarily in the church. Right. But again, of course there are folks who were in that church. Mm. Um, there are folks who maybe you're listening to that podcast who what it's mirroring back to them is, Oh, I, maybe not to the same degree or in the same ways, but I am experiencing something like that in my church with my pastor or my leader. And I think what grieves me pastorally actually is, um, that I think many people find themselves feeling so kind of, um, linguistically impoverished to Mm -hmm. know how to talk about that. And I think one of the, one of the, I think the brilliant aspects of the Marcel podcast and what Mike did was, um. Ask that question: Like, how do we talk about this? Yeah. What it? What is this thing? Like, everyone's saying something went wrong here, <laughs> mm. but what? It, but what really is that? And, um, and also wrestling through the, the the nuances and the challenge of does it mean that nothing good was going on? Does it mean God was absent? Does it mean you know, yeah, um, people who were baptized or accepted Christ in the church <laughs> that didn't like? How do we think about this? Yeah. Right and. But I think what has has struck me in, in conversation is, um, with people about again that podcast or other stories they see coming out, and is that they're looking for um, resources. They're looking for guides to help to help them talk well about this, to name it. And I think for some people, you know, who haven't had a similar experience in their church. They did. They, they experienced the Marcel podcast as like, Oh yeah. Like that is what I've been experiencing and I'm not crazy to think this is wrong, you know? And so, um, but yet I think what I've seen happen is, and this is maybe the, the part that grieves me is, um, people, I think faithful followers of Jesus finding themselves feeling ill-equipped to name, to articulate, to identify what is going on with a biblical idiom, right? Like yeah. Not knowing how to talk about it. When I do think scripture actually, you know, provides us with a rich tapestry of resources to talk about this well mm. and um, to name it appropriate, to name it in God's terms. Yeah. And, um, and instead what has happened, right, is we've kind of adopted the language of our culture and in in many ways, it kind of makes sense in, in terms in, in a kind of from a historical vantage point. Okay, so you have the Me Too movement and the culture, mm-hmm. and and now you we have a culture that's that's talking about things like abuse, um, and and rightly so, right, exposing yeah, yeah. abuses. But I think what what happened is is I think as maybe some of these stories started surfacing in the church, whether you know sexual abuse or not, the kind of the language of the culture around how do we talk about those in power who have wielded their authority to abuse someone else or harm someone else or do, you know, um, manipulate someone. It well, I think what many believers have done is said, oh I, oh, I guess that's our way of talking about this over here too. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, much of that is picked up in and through, I think the social media space and fine. I'm sure it's also picked up through, a kind of um, classical media, so sure. to speak. But I think, particularly for maybe those who are forty and under, yeah, <laughs> it's less that yeah. and it's more Twitter, it's more Facebook, it's more you know those spaces where that's actually where they're hearing it being talked about, and the language they're hearing being used is like either very kind of psychological terminology. So, for example, right, um, the word narcissist gets thrown around a lot, Mm -hmm. right? And I do wonder sometimes for friends of mine who are psychologists, how they actually feel about that. (laughs) Um, I I have a suspicion about how they feel about that, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's being used, and I think understandably so, to name something really alarming as a term that actually identifies it with a degree of seriousness. Mm -hmm. And again, maybe to use the word, to use the force. Like we want to say this is really bad, okay, here's a term that really says this is really bad. But the problem is when the term gets used um, so kind of casually to identify anybody who had a moment of arrogance, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, it begins to lose its real meaning. And when it gets used by maybe at a more kind of pop cultural level to talk about people in authority who wield power in ways we think is is inappropriate or coercive or manipulative or, uh, or just quote gross. Yeah. Yeah. The Nelson, we kind of pathologized. Um, well, we've done a lot of pathologizing (laughs) when we didn't, maybe didn't mean to. Yeah. And so the term while used to, to name the seriousness and, and and apply some force and give some definition actually ends up being rather, hollow in its meaning Mm. because you've wielded a term that has actually specific meaning in a specific field of study, as well as a specific field of care that those who've done that study and do that care actually know how to apply that term in a a kind of a more technical and appropriate sense to identify a particular pathology. Yeah. And so I I think, you know, it's, it's one example, but now it gets picked up right in the social media space. And now, you know, we use the word narcissist you know just casually oh what a narcissist oh he's a narcissist yeah. <laughs> and yeah. um, it begins to lose its meaning and i think similar to the word ab- abuse and it it doesn't mean that when we say spiritual abuse that it, it is it is somehow inappropriate or it's not true at times but now that that term gets used so frequently and i think often by those who don't actually really really know what they mean when they use it They're again, to, to be charitable there, there's, they are trying to name a real problem yeah. and they're looking for language to help them name the problem. But the problem, the problem is now you're using language that again, has associations with you know, sexual abuse, you know, physical abuse, mm-hmm. emotional abuse, right? And there may be more concrete ways that we've learned to identify what those are. There's a certain, again, Uh, training, skill set, and expertise in identifying that. And um, I think there are those who are doing the hard work right now, like our friend Chuck DeGroat, I think would be a good example, of actually giving some good definition to what is spiritual abuse and how do we identify it. And So so I think there are those that that are doing that work that also have training uh, psychologically and have an understanding of what abuse and trauma are. But wielding the language of trauma, wielding the language of abuse, identifying people as narcissists, when when we begin to kind of traffic in this language really casually and quickly without really knowing what we mean, right? I think it can have the opposite effect that we hope it will have. We're we're wanting to say something specific here, and we're actually not saying something very specific. We're wanting to name the real problem, but we're not naming the real problem. And absent a lot of that training and expertise, actually probably most of us are pretty (laughs) ill-equipped to use that language well and appropriately, Whereas the Lord has provided us with his word. And I think you and I would want to argue um, now in Christ by the spirit, we actually have a a capacity to understand his word, to know his word, right? A um, tradition of the kind of the perspicuity of the text that, that even those of us who aren't theologians who haven't done PhDs in systematic theology, like you and me can, can understand scripture And can actually begin to use this language appropriately in our life by the spirit to name and identify our own sin, the sins of others. Mm -hmm. And I think what is sad for me as a pastor is I think people have sensed a vacuum there that maybe haven't been trained and taught God's Word in that way, to know how to actually um, identify where God's Word might help provide language for these things. they they don't know that. And so now they're picking up language elsewhere to to, to help them name something that the church itself ought to be able to name for itself first yeah. and foremost with its own language. And so, there's a turn to the language that's trafficked in on social media, you know, gaslighting and platforming and showing your receipts, right? <laughs> this becomes kind of a common vernacular, the sociological terminology, ger- pop journalistic terminology. Then there's the kind of psychological terminology we've, also, we've already mentioned. Right. And all the while, I think um, folks have been estranged to a biblical idiom, as well as a, just a training in theological reasoning from the text of that i think actually the christian tradition has said we have a lot to say about these things you know so i think about yeah. sin in particular and i go wow you know we have a whole tradition that has said hey we look at the whole canon and we can actually identify a kind of a, a profile here of very common and persistent sins that the Bible names repeatedly. The Bible gives us descriptions of. The Bible provides us with, um, even a sense of how that shows up both internally and externally mm-hmm. in someone's life. And we have a whole tradition of the church that sought to read the text well, and now reason Christianly in light of that, and talk about things like you know wrath, envy, lust, greed. You know what the tradition is often called the seven deadly sins in some quarters. In other quarters, it's the language of vice and virtue. But that language throughout church history is really just an attempt to say, here's what the Bible seems to be telling us about sins, how we might be able to identify them rightly, the kind of language we can use in describing them. And I think so many evangelical Christians today, they're estranged from that biblical idiom, and they're also totally unfamiliar with this tradition in the church that actually provides us with a rich set of resources for saying yeah. That's what's going on there. And we can actually discern what that is. We can see it and identify it. Here's some of the signs of that, that mm-hmm. kind of sin. Here's what may be going on in the heart. And here's how we can name that well. And so I, I think what grieves me pastorally is that we've, perhaps pastors like myself, haven't equipped yeah, Christians well to speak well, and so this is, of course, in no way, in, 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 you and you and I, neither of us are wanting to say that that the psychological language isn't helpful or isn't isn't a helpful resource that ought to be at the Christian sure. disposal. Sure, um, it's in no way to say that um, you know the language of journalists is inappropriate. Or that uh, legal terminology is not needed when dealing with legal yeah. uh, legal reality. Of course, right? But I think it is to say that um, oftentimes we turn to those kinds of language, that that kind of language from those domains at a very kind of pop cultural level, yeah. where the terms really have kind of been um, kind of evacuated of their real meaning, divorced from their actual domains of study and expertise. And we kind of adopted it because we don't we don't know what to say about what Mark Driscoll is doing there. What is that thing when yeah. he's yelling at people on a stage? What is that? Is it just toxic leadership, mm. right? Or or is that wrath? Yeah. And actually, does Scripture talk about wrath and um, sinful anger? And does the tradition provide us now with the resource? Of interpreting what scriptures well, yeah, actually it does, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and maybe that's what's going on there. And might it be helpful to be able to name the sins in more Christian terms, as followers of Jesus?
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And I think you know one of the the real dangers that you name is by employing these terms. Like, there's a couple things I think you're going. I, I think you've given a really charitable read of what's happening, um, which I appreciate. Um, People don't have the right language, right? So they're grasping for something. I, I think there's also the, a kind of kind of a little bit more of a gross underbelly to it, which is the weaponizing mm. of buzzwords that I've experienced something that wasn't right. okay? Well, let's just take that for granted. Well, that's you could say that, but if I, if I grab onto the word abuse, now I can weaponize something that demands action.
0: Now I'm going to really get a hearing.
1: And I'm going to get a hearing. And, I, yeah. and you know, there's, it, it struck, strikes me as interesting as, you know, the way from above as described in James 3, the descriptions of following Jesus, the kind of wisdom that comes from this, is that it's pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason— Full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Mm. And I just think about it, if you just take that kind of cataloging of virtues from James three seventeen, and and just sit with your own reaction to things. Because I, you know, I say this as you know, just based on my own story. I, I mean, I grew up, you know, two of the well known churches that have become archetypes for toxic leadership were the first two churches I grew up in. So like I have a lot of experience in this, and I left those... What's the common denominator? Yeah, (laughs) 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 Yeah, that's right, that's right. I don't know if it's me, but I left those churches so angry, Mm. and the way I could solve that was by just lambasting the leadership by grabbing onto any categories that I thought would give me leverage. And, and you know, this is where it it's dangerous because again, it's it's me grasping a tongue set on fire by hell and it's setting the course of a life, right? Like that that could have led me down into a very dangerous kind of gossip-driven ministry, <laughs> gossip kind of driven w- approach to these things where I'm now trying to kind of wield myself against others now. I'm doing exactly what James 3 warns against, right? Mm-hmm. I'm wielding selfish ambition and jealousy against those who hurt me, you know. Um, but the other thing it does is is it ends up, you know, after I'm tossing around terms like narcissists so much, to your point, the term kind of becomes meaningless, right? right? And, and there's a real danger here. Again, if, if it's not kind of tempered by reasonableness— where now the language now now suddenly people who have been sexually abused, who have been physically abused, we're gonna force them to like leave behind this language because suddenly they won't even have the resources to name the truth because they're now using the same category that someone uses when someone raised their voice against them or something. And it's they're they're now it's now emptied of its content in any significant way. And so we really have to be careful, I think, not to try to wield ourselves and to kind of weaponize our anger. And you see this in so many different realms where suddenly we're using terminology that isn't quite fit. And again, we, we, we've been given the terminology. And, you know, I, I do think, you know, if we look at the evangelical tradition, one of the things that we've lost— if you would grow up in evangelicalism two, three hundred years ago, you would have grown up with the Ten Commandments as a kind of training manual for not only vice but also virtue, and the Ten Commandments were used almost like the tradition that used the seven deadly sins were used. So they were the Ten Commandments would have been ways to try to analyze. I mean, if you think about, um, you know. All the ways we look, you know, oh, I I kind of do want my neighbor's car, right? <laughs> I I kind of want like that that's going to give you a lens into wow, envy is still at work in my soul. Mm-hmm. Or or why does scripture keep on naming things like envy? Because not only is things like selfish ambition and jealousy are named in places like James 3, but in Philippians 2, when the way of Jesus is articulated, envy is named there, right? So it's like. What what is Scripture doing when it's trying to name these things? And and how can we use that language to not only name what we see going on in the world, but particularly to see what we see going on in ourselves? Yes. To name the truth so that we can then name what we see well. I mean, I think of the the, you know, log in your own eye versus the speck in your neighbor's eye. You know, one of the goals of that passage is to be able to name the speck. Reasonably, right? <laughs> right. And it, it, But you have to know the log in your own eye. And I think f- there's so much to look at now and to point fingers at now in the leadership sphere, in the kind of ege- evangelical celebrity culture that... We could be tempted to just avoid entirely naming the truth. Yes. And, you know, I could truly say it is only by the the mercy and grace of God that I didn't just spin off into anger and jealousy and selfish ambition after leaving those churches mm-hmm. and wielding that because I knew I was better than them. Mm-hmm. Because deep in my gut, I had this prideful sense that I'm better than these people and I'm going to condemn them. And my ministry will be a sign that I am better to them. And the Lord led me a different way by his mercy to show that I'm not better than them, <laughs> that everything I saw in them has a root in my own heart, mm-hmm. and that I, I needed to, to kind of be tempered by this mirror of the truth so that I can name in truth what I actually see going on there. And, and only the kind of idiom of scripture really gives us the ability to name those things well.
0: Yeah yeah I think you know maybe a couple specific passages that surface for me i mean you've you've um walked us through a bit of james and I mean we could spend hours and hours just uh, walking through different sections of scripture of course and talking about this, but maybe a couple that really like jump out at me mm-hmm. as I think about some of these conversations again i've 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 had with folks who've wanted to talk about the Marcel podcast and well, what went wrong and toxic leadership and, um, or just again, others who've wanted to talk to me about their own experiences in church, their, their, their church or a prior church or, and, um, this, you know, this kind of inability to really articulate in, in distinctively Christian terms, what the sin is, what the problem mm. is, what God has to say about that, <laughs> Um, and therefore e- even to the question of how elders of a church ought to respond to that. I mean, to, to, to your point, I, I think, you know, what does it mean to come to a group of elders and say, uh, we believe this leader, uh, or, you know, I believe this leader is a narcissist. Mm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, I think an, an elder board ought to be rightly, rightly ought to be concerned, but we we need to move to the language of scripture in order to actually have a conversation about what elders ought to do about whatever it is that's being described. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, well, that's concerning. Maybe we ought to encourage him to go to therapy. Is that what's being suggested? Or are you, are you saying there's sin here? And are you saying this person has disqualified themselves from the office of elder themselves that they've disqualified themselves as a pastor? Mm. well, well, where could we go, right? <laughs> where, could where could we possibly go to answer that question, right? And so this is maybe the first text I'd want to move to. I think what, what has really struck me in many of these conversations is how unaware people are hmm. that Scripture is actually very clear, very specific yeah. about the qualifications of an elder pastor mm-hmm. and about what might disqualify. And there are many other passages we could go to that I think actually – provide further fodder for discernment around that that are less direct, but there's a couple that are really direct in the pastoral epistles. Mm. And I think that upon real meditation and study provide an incredible uh, lens of discernment and, and assessment. And yet I think so many of these conversations, I find folks trying to kind of grope for like, well, you know, a leader just shouldn't be like that. And a leader, sh- they yeah. need to be healthy. And well, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And, and so here's just one of those passages, right? Paul's letter to Titus. Of course, Paul provides two such kind of qualification descriptions. But here, here's one in Titus. Here's Paul. This is why I left you in Crete, Titus 1, beginning verse 5, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's sewer must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Mm -hmm. Well, there's so much being said here, of course. But it's simply by way of of helping us see that actually Mm -hmm. we have quite a bit of, of resource here. Well, if we see if what you mean when you say this pastor is is narcissistic quote unquote is that he's quick tempered and arrogant well now we have not yeah. now now we have a real conversation that has to be had mm-hmm. by elders receiving this report from someone in the in the congregation who's expressing concern Now now we're saying that according to God's word this this pastor, this elder may not be qualified for their office because of their behavior. And of course, process of discernment. Again, scripture provides us actually with a, a sense of what that process of discernment ought to look like in terms of conversations and assessments and how we actually receive certain accusations of sin in the life of the yeah. church. Right? But nevertheless, now if we're using the language of um, this pastor, I feel like has demonstrated real arrogance. Cause see, here's the irony and here's, Here's, I think, where my, my empathy really does show up in your your response to kind of my charitable. <laughs> like, here's what's sad. I, th- I think, to be fair, showing up and saying, I feel like this person has demonstrated real narcissism, I think actually probably does feel more serious than saying, mm. I think th- the pastor demonstrates a persistent attitude of arrogance. Yeah. Well, an arrogance. I mean... Yeah, yeah. When that's actually the word used in this passage, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so to, to be fair, I think even those who shepherd God's flock themselves need to be reacquainted with the language. Yeah. And I think so often we know these passages in Timothy and Titus, but we know them in a very cursory manner. Right. And and we've kind of trivialized them as a kind of a, a baseline qualification, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. As long as the as long as this this pastor's, you know, not getting drunk and mm. not stealing money. No, no. Meditate on the passage. Because right? even the language of being above reproach, it's meant to signal for us here the demand for discernment. Yeah. Well, what does it mean to be above reproach? Does it mean that that um uh, this person can go around gossiping. I mean, it didn't say that gossip was a problem. So is gossip not a problem? <laughs> well, surely not. It's like yeah. Paul's list of the gifts sure. elsewhere in Scripture. This is not meant to mean this is an exhaustive list of all the ways the Spirit works in and through the church. This is meant to be representative of the ways the Spirit often works in in and through his people in the church, as Paul gives his list elsewhere of the gifts in Corinthians. Similarly here, mm. it doesn't mean that that being a drunkard is really the only problem, but if they <laughs> gossip, no, because right. he didn't say it, gossip's not a problem. Well, no, clearly gossip would be a problem, yeah. right? So the language of above reproach is meant to signal that this is a person who must be an exemplar in the faith to others, that their life is such, they model the way of Jesus to those who are younger in the faith as one who is mature in the faith Mm. and that any accusation levied against them right ought to be weighed very seriously because of the character they are known to have in the community both outside the church and inside the church Mm. that um serious accusation must be required actually because of the way they conduct their lives, that the way they're living their life isn't kind of easily open to accusation, right? Well, he does go to the bar every day and get close to drunk, right? This is the point. So, but the list given here is meant to be a description of the kinds of behavior that would mark one off as being above reproach. Here's some examples. Are they hospitable? Mm. Well, that requires some meditation, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, what, what would it look like to be inhospitable actually is what it's asking us to do. Mm. And is that, is that a concern to us? Right. Um, what does it mean to be greedy for gain? What does that look like? What is a kind of quick temperedness? look like? Now, does that mean it's, it's a one moment of impatience and, <laughs> and anger showing through, or do we have, is this, we actually need to see kind of a pattern of behavior in someone's life. What's being asked for here in, in the qualification of being above reproach. So, I could go on and on, of course, right? Yeah, yeah. But the point is, well, Scripture actually provides us with real resource for discernment here Mm. and a profile of what, quote, a healthy pastor looks like, a healthy leader looks like, and some qualifications, a description of the kinds of behavior that we ought to not see and the kinds of behavior that we ought to see. And maybe lastly, I'll just say, and kick it back to you, Kyle, but... I think of 1 Corinthians 13 as another good example. Mm. Right? We have a description there of love. Well, being above reproach, ought that mean that this person's life demonstrates consistently an obedience to God's command to love their neighbor? Mm. I, that seems like a reasonable argument to make. Yeah. Jesus says, here's the first first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, if If a shepherd of God's flock is living in such a manner that their life does not persistently demonstrate love of God and love of neighbor. They're not actually an exemplar of love, but actually they're persistently demonstrating the opposite. Would would that be concerning to us? Mm -hmm. And so as we read Paul's description of the way of love, love is patient. It's kind. Doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. Does not insist on its own way. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Well, there's a lot there for us to (laughs) contemplate. Yeah, right. What I think when I think back to so so much of the way uh, Driscoll's behavior was described. Hmm. What there's a there's a kind of a rudeness again but to be charitable, I think to folks, sure. if I were to come to <laughs> yeah, right elders or yeah. leaders and say, I feel like he's rude. Would that, would that raise concern? Would that be taken seriously? Well, according to scripture, it ought to be because yeah. actually it's a demonstration that there's disobedience here to God's way of love. Yeah. That God's way of love has been rejected and there's no more serious disobedience that we could imagine. According to Jesus. Yeah, yeah. How about insisting on your own way? Hmm. Wow. Well, what does that look like? Yeah. Kind of, so as I hear about you know, language like gaslighting, <laughs> right? coercion, again, we want to be really clear here. We're not saying this language has no value or no meaning or can never be used rightly. But what I'm getting at is oftentimes with this kind of terminology, we're, we're grasping for something yeah. that actually Scripture provides us with. What, we, what we're saying is God's way of love is not being upheld here. And that is the most serious charge we could bring. Mm. And that way of love has been rejected because this person is persistently insisting upon their own way. And that goes against the way of Jesus. And now we can have a conversation from Scripture about what Scripture actually commands and instructs, what Scripture expects of those who are called to be above reproach. um, So we could go on and on, of course, right? Jesus' language of wolves and sheep how Jesus responds to leaders, um, the Pharisees, and the need to well, yeah. what 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 resource might we have there thinking about how we think about leaders in the life of the church. But here's just two quick examples, right? That text from from Titus, yeah, where we get yeah. an actual profile description of qualifications, and a description of what the way of love really looks like from Paul. I think we do well to camp out here we do well to traffic in this language yeah. and leaders do well to heed the seriousness of these passages and to use these as means of discerning another leader's quote unhealth or quote yeah. toxicity and we do well as god's people to speak in god's language this is right speech yeah according to God, about what we see in the church, how we name things, how we identify them. We're, we're speaking with God about such matters. Yeah. And there's a faithfulness in that, that I think will bear fruit. That's right. We'll yeah. Bear yeah. Fruit.
1: yeah. 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 Well, let me, let me just kind of, you know, bring this episode to a close by, by encouraging, you know, let me, let me give two kind of encouragements for two different audiences. You know, if, if you are in leadership and whether that's, you know, at a church or a Christian institution or any kind of leadership, I suppose, You know, I wanted you to sit with the, the demanding your own way. I mean, even if you just sat with that one and thought, what would it mean personally for me to, to lead in such a way that doesn't demand my own way? But I even wonder, how, how does this get baked in institutionally? I mean, one of the, one of the standard kind of protocols... For leadership to go "quote unquote" toxic, like the like the, the language, that, or to use our language, for the leadership to em- embrace a way of power from below is when a pastor, as to use the typical example, gets rid of all the elders who or leaders who kind of confront them, really? <laughs> right? And yeah. they create. I mean, this is the, the classic story where right? they surround themselves with people who simply will do whatever they tell them. There's there an inst- interesting kind of institutional sin here of demanding your own way that is actually just an abandoning faith, right? This is where you know an institution has decided not to live by faith, when the leaders need their own way to, to, to be the only way. Like, that, that, that is giving up the way of faith, presumably because pragmatically, it won't, they don't imagine it will work because they're the anointed one, they're the one who gets things done. they're the only one that can possibly be the instrument of God's action and therefore right you get the, this kind of um, this kind of system in place. And so for leaders it, it'd be interesting to kind of just meditate on that a little bit like what would it mean for me to embrace this this way of love? you know for for everyone else, I, I do just wonder if it'd be meaningful for us to just consider w- when I experience something negative in the church, when I see one of the people, maybe there's someone whose whose ministry has been meaningful to me through books or podcasts or whatever, and and I see this stuff happen, right? Whether it's a Ravi Zacharias, whether it was a Mark Driscoll, whether it's Bill Hybels, whoever it was, what what is the language I primarily turn to, and why? Or when something happens in the church that frustrates me, like like what? what are the concepts? What are the terminology? Like, where do I turn to kind of explain this world I live in? Is it the language of Scripture? Is it the language of sin? Is it the language of holiness? Is it, Or is it primarily language, or maybe even just solely language, that I'm hearing from culture? And is actually, have a lot of kind of I don't want to call them anti-Christian or sub-Christian, I'm not like just kind of secular terminology, because they don't have to be against Christianity, of course. Some of this can be neutral. But have I allowed this other language to be the only way I come to understand the kind of logic of 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 abuse, the logic of anger, the logic of evil in the world? And maybe just spend some time in these biblical passages where Paul is naming, for instance, you know, the fruit of the Spirit versus the fruit of the flesh. Well, what is that fruit of the flesh? Or James' is way from below. Like how, how do we actually kind of sit with Scripture and allow Scripture to provide the proper idiom by which we understand these things? I hope that that is a helpful word. I I know that some of this may be challenging. You may 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 to use the the image from James. You know, scripture is a mirror, and so sometimes we stand before it and we, we don't we don't like what we what we see. Um, James is going to remind us that the the way of folly is to turn ar- away and forget what you look like. Right, right. If if this is a harsh mirror, allow it to be, um, but allow it to turn you to Christ and and stand face to face with Him and and help. Uh, kind of help open your heart to to what it may be to live in His way in the midst of these things. Um, Thank you again for being with us. Um, May the Lord bless you and keep you and guide you as you seek to be faithful to His way.
0: Thank you for listening to the Way of the Lamb podcast, a resource of the Center for Christian Formation. For more information, go to christianform.org.